Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambhudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambhudasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one Saranto Suchedoye Hulahudi San Miao San Putoshe Namo Saranto Suchedoye Hulahudi San Miao San Putoshe Wushang Shen Shen Wei Miao Fa Bai Chen Wang Che Nan Zao Yu Wo Jin Chen Wang De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture. Tonight we're going to continue to look into the Avatamsaka Sutra. It's the 19th of May, May 19th. And we're here in Berkeley, California. We're going to look into the uh, Ten Grounds chapter, the third ground. Let me invite all of you to turn, please, in your text to the front cover. We're going to recite the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Who bring it, bring it to life? Namo Dafan Guan Fo
page 50, 51. Because we, uh, we had um, many Dharma speakers here during the four months that I was away, um, we covered a large portion of this text, but um, it wasn't recorded systematically, and we'd like to have a complete start-to-finish uh, transcription of, of, our, of our lectures uh, when we're done. So I decided to start over. To come back to the place where I left, and not to disrespect the efforts of the, the speakers who uh, compassionately and vigorously filled in for me, but to say that um, since that wasn't recorded, since we didn't have a, a steady tape of that of their talks, so we need to uh, cover the that area, that piece of the text. Otherwise, we have a hole when we're done, and. I'm going to try to take a bigger piece every week uh, than I usually do, so we actually can uh, cover cover this section. And the people who were faithful and and steadfast in supporting it will have already heard this material, but I think it's in that this is the Buddha's wisdom. It won't hurt a, a bit to, to hear it again. And let's hope that I'll be able to... Uh, confirm and deepen what you heard from the other nuns and, and lay people who lectured. So, turn to the bottom of page 50, last two lines, and bottom of page 51, last four lines. We're going to cover that same section here. Pusa Rushi Fa Qin Jing Jin Chou Yu Fo Fa Ru Chi So Wen Guan Cha Xiu Xing Okay, over to the right. This is how the Bodhisattva musters his strength and gets vigorous in searching for the Buddha Dharma. Then he contemplates and cultivates in accordance with the teachings that he hears. This is, again, uh, it's important to say that... Can everybody hear me in the back? Yeah. Loud? Good? This is not gender-specific. It's not about men. It's not about women. It's not even about humans entirely. It's a much bigger audience than that. So our, our speaker is a bodhisattva named Vajra Treasury. Uh, treasury of adamantine uh, purity. And he is speaking for the Buddha. So this is the Buddha's mind being explained. But the spokesperson is a bodhisattva. So that happens a lot in this sutra. The Buddha actually only speaks a little piece of it, although this is definitely a Buddhist sutra. The actual spokesperson is a bodhisattva. So this is Vajra Treasury. And as the, um, <clears throat> as the sutra goes on, different bodhisattvas step up to do the job. So he is talking about the bodhisattva path. What's a bodhisattva like? What does a real bodhisattva do? And he's uh, <coughs> giving a series of talks 
that are gathered into a teaching called the Ten Grounds, the Ten Stages. And we're on number three. This is the third one out of ten. And our Bodhisattva, as we, we did a review last week, the Bodhisattva is, um, he's looking at living beings, he's looking at us, and saying, those people are hurting. There, there's a lot of pain and misery, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion happening in the lives of these people who I care about, and I want them to hurt less. It's kind of like if you see your child touch the burner of the electric stove or put their finger in the flame of the, of the gas stove and, ouch, you know, they get burned and the, and the baby cries or the child cries. and You, the, the mom, the dad, the brother, the sister, um, want the baby to not hurt. You want to make the, the ouch go away. The Bodhisattva looks at us the very same way. We don't necessarily stick our fingers in the burner or burn ourselves on the stove. We've, we've learned that one. But we do other stuff that hurts just as much. We uh, get ourselves involved in, in relationships that, that turn around and, and become a source of pain instead of the promise of happiness that they, that they started out with. We uh, put our money in the bank and discover that our bank took the money and invested it in a scheme with uh, a hotshot uh, financial advisor who wound up uh, stealing the money. Uh, that happened to people as clever and as connected as our good friend John Robbins, Diet for New America, John Robbins, who put his money into a safe account, discovered that the bank gave that money to Bernard Madoff, and he was penniless. He got a notice from the bank saying, sorry, your money's gone. Start over. And this is someone who is not easily fooled. And yet he too wound up getting burned on the stove. The stove was the financial system in America. And he burned himself. He got burned without any knowledge that this was happening to his investment. So that's the kind of pain that burns us. The Bodhisattva sees this and he goes, what can I do? How can I make it hurt less? And <clears throat> so he devotes himself to finding an answer to that question. I'm going to find out. I want to find out how to make it hurt less. So he starts out doing it, and he looks and looks. And his conclusion, and we found this out in the third ground, his conclusion was, it's the Buddha Dharma that can make people uh, hurt less. If people understand the Dharma, they will find a way, not that they wind up, they, they know how to make safer investments. That may or may not be true. But they learn how to deal with the suffering that arises. Okay? They say pain is inevitable. Whether or not we suffer is an option. And the Bodhisattva works on that one. He's able to get in between the pain and the reaction to the pain and, and teach people how to live in a way that makes the suffering bearable, uh, even an option. So you can say, well, yeah, that's really the nature of the world, isn't it? Boy, oh boy, I'm going to take my money out of that bank, my next money that I make after recovering any insurance or whatever. I'm going to invest in a credit union instead. 
that doesn't make speculative investments. I'm not going to support Wall Street. I'm going to support my local credit union, which is a collective, a cooperative of my neighbors. And they don't take my money and, unbeknownst to me, put it in toxic bonds and investments. So, you know, the Bodhisattva says, yeah. And the reaction, you know, how do I react to getting the message from my bank that I'm suddenly poor? Well, that's up to me. I don't have to hurt because of that or be shocked or be angry. I don't have to get afflicted when I get the bad news that I'm suddenly penniless when it wasn't my fault. I can float with that and say, that's the nature of the world. Good grief, there's a lesson there. So what does that take? That takes deep patience. That takes real self-confidence and a wisdom that looks at the nature of the world, how hard that is to not want to go bomb the bank or go find Bernard Madoff and scold him or something. So that's how the Bodhisattva teaches living beings to choose whether or not they're going to suffer when pain arises. It hurts to have all of your security wiped away in a phone call. Um, <clears throat> John Robbins did it by writing a book uh, about... Uh, Living, uh, what was the title of the book? Um, it's, it's Living the Good Life for the 21st Century, which is to say, living well with less. How to get along and thrive and, and enjoy the challenge of suddenly living without any money. And he turned it into a blessing. So in Chinese, they say, you take a disaster and turn it into a blessing. You make what's horrific into auspiciousness with your mind. That's the Bodhisattva's answer. John Robbins did that. He wrote a book telling everybody else how to live well when all you have is your, your skill and means and your awareness of the abundance around us. Farmer's markets instead of Safeway, for example, and growing your own instead of farmer's markets. So, like that. That's what the Bodhisattva is doing in this chapter. He says, it's the Buddha Dharma. The Buddha Dharma is the answer. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, then the next step he says, where do I find it? Where do I get the Buddha Dharma? Ah, I have to find a teacher. I have to find somebody who knows the Dharma. I have to find somebody who can speak even a sentence of Dharma that I haven't heard before and then go hear it and learn it. So that's what he did. And... Their sutra is so uh, dramatic. I mean, this, this text is not a philosophy textbook. What happens? The Bodhisattva gets a challenge. He gets these, these little vignettes in every one of the grounds come up. And so the good advisor says, Oh, you want to hear Buddha Dharma? Okay, yeah. I have something I can tell you that'll... The, the word they say is purify all your Bodhisattva practices. I can help you master... All of these techniques, you can learn real Kung Fu. However, there's a price. You have to throw your body into a pit of fire from the peak of the heavens. You have to climb up to the highest heaven and throw your body into a pit of fire as big as the whole universe. Then I'll give you the sentence of Dharma. And the Bodhisattva goes, yes, great. Show me how to get up there. Is that a ladder? Do I take an elevator? What do I do? And doesn't flinch, doesn't shirk, doesn't go... No deal. No way. Am I on candid camera? You know, am I dreaming? 
No, no, no. The, the good advisor says, no, I want you to jump. He says, I'll jump. He says, I could jump from heaven higher than that. How much the less, how much the more am I willing to jump into a pit of fire in this human realm? So what does the sutra do? It gives this exaggerated, outrageous example meant to show us how, uh, how much we are attached and unwilling to suffer for something good, how much we are unwilling to sacrifice when we see something good. The sutra does that. It gives this, this you know, impossible example, exaggerated, way out of imagination. And the bodhisattva says, sure, I'll do that, no problem. How much the more am I willing to do something normal that, that indicates willingness to, to suffer for the dharma? That's where we got up. That's, that's where we landed last time. Um, so, the bodhisattva musters his strength and gets vigorous in searching for the Buddha Dharma. Sure enough, he's going to get that sentence of Dharma that'll purify his mastery, that'll give him mastery over the practices. Then he contemplates, she contemplates, and cultivates in accordance with the teachings that she hears. Key sentence here. What is it? After the bodhisattva makes this resolve and says, yep, I'll do it. Here's the sentence of Dharma and then puts it into practice. That's the key. Puts the Dharma into practice according to what he hears. Okay? Ru chi so wen guan cha xiu xing. Just the way he hears it or learns it, the Bodhisattva then goes and does it. Okay? That's, that's a key. That's a, that's a turn. It's not just a... a intellectual understanding. It's not, yeah, yeah, I agree with that idea. That's good. But then you have to actually go do what the teaching says. That's key. You have to practice it. Okay? Flip uh, last line here and then turn the page. Once this Bodhisattva hears the Dharma, she focuses her mind and settles her body in a quiet and tranquil place. There she reflects. One understands the Buddha Dharma by putting it into practice. Words alone will not bring mastery. Okay. <coughs> Notice that it's specified that the Bodhisattva goes to a quiet place. To contemplate. That's interesting because it's hard to find a quiet place anymore to actually cultivate. Dr. Konza, the famous Sanskrit translator, translator of the Prajnaparamita text, he he had a theory that that I'll never forget because it was so uh, ridiculous. But he was he believed in it completely. Dr. Konza was. Uh, back in the f- 60s and 70s, was probably the expert in in Prajnaparamita translation. He was he had devoted his whole life to mastering Sanskrit and then translating this one corner of Buddhist literature. And Dr. Konza, uh, he he was very opinionated to say the least. And so he said, mm, "Buddhist enlightenment." Not possible. Not not possible any longer. No, no, no. No one can get enlightened anymore. No, no, no. Not possible. Why not, Dr. Kuzma? The world is too noisy. There's no quiet place left. He said. <laughs> so, pssst. How disappointed we were. We thought we were going to get enlightened. But it's too noisy in the world. No, no, no. 
So it's like, okay, thank you very much, Dr. Konza. Please translate your Sanskrit texts and let us go meditate. So if that's true, if the world is too noisy, why bother sitting, right? right? Well, what did Master Shenhua, what did our teacher say? Shifu said, all right, uh, have you ever been anywhere quiet? He would say. He said this to actually one of our nuns, the former Bhikshuni Hangyin, asked the same question. She heard Konza say this. She took it back to Master Hua. And she said, Ah, Shervo, Dr. Konza says the world's too noisy. Nobody can get enlightened anymore. Is that right? And uh, so what were we? We were sitting in the Mission District, 15th Street and Valencia in San Francisco, one of the noisier places in the world. And there were buses going by, and Smitty's body shop was next door, with the, the lug nuts on the hubcaps, you know, like that. And airplanes, it's so noisy in the Mission District, the planes go by, you can't hear them. There's a jet, and it's... Because why the street noise is so loud, you can't hear the airplane. You can't hear it. So, you know, and people shouting and running up and down the street. And we're doing a Chan session inside. Right, so. and so Bhikshuni Hanyan, Shirfu, Doctor Kwanza says it's too noisy in the world. Is that right? Shirfu says, "All right. Have you ever been in a really quiet place?" And he goes, mm-hmm. "Tim Testu, one of our uh, monks, had been in a submarine. Right? He was a Navy ship diver, submarine diver. And he says, yeah, 'Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, like really quiet.' He said, "Well, what was it like when you were down there in the submarine?'" And uh, Testu laughed. He said, actually, he says, uh, all I could hear was my heartbeat and my lungs. Shriver says, exactly. You bring your own noise with you. Get real. He said, Dr. Konza has probably never tried to meditate. And that's a really skillful excuse to not try because it's useless. You're even gonna, it's too noisy. So, in fact, you know, there's no quiet place in the world. If you've been in an immersion tank, full-body immersion tank where they do these, uh, you know, consciousness experiments because they totally cut off your senses. What, what's it like? There's a... And a... Yet that doesn't stop until you die. And then it's too late to notice whether it's quiet or not, you know. So get real, you know. Now, if uh, there are lots and lots of Zen stories about the meditators who fled to the mountains to escape the dust of the world, uh, they just get rid of all of the noise of civilization with all its greed and anger and delusion. I'm going out in the mountains, sitting by a quiet pond. And what happens? Chirp, chirp, chirp. Damn you, bird, shut up. You know, oh, darn. You know, it's like... It's noisy out in the woods. Get real. What are you talking about? It's too noisy in the woods. So Dr. Kohn's theory did not stand up to Master Shrenhua's, you know, uh, logic and real, real world test. So nonetheless, that being said, once the Bodhisattva hears the Dharma, she focuses her mind and settles her body in a quiet and tranquil place. So what is a... Kong Xian Chu, Shu Xin Anju, four four characters. Shu to gather in. There's a hand there. You pull back your heart, your mind, Anju, and live in peace. You gather back your mind 
and you anju, you settle yourself down peacefully. Okay, there is the story. What does it mean to gather back your mind? It means let the world be noisy, don't follow the thoughts, don't pursue them. I remember um, one day on Three Steps, One Bow pilgrimage, when my colleague, the former Hung Chao, Marty, was out there um, at the end of a day's bowing. He was meditating, and we were not far from uh, Monterey, and Marty was sitting on a, there's a little grassy area, and he was sitting to calm down because it had been a busy, noisy day, and he was, was sitting there, and he came back to the car afterwards and wrote in his diary, and he was really radiant. You know, he was really, you could tell, something had happened during that meditation. So I grabbed for his diary when he finished reading it and, and read it. And he said, how remarkable, nothing has to change except my grabbing for sense impressions. Let the world go and it moves right through. He wrote. Let the world go and it moves right through. It doesn't stop if I don't stop it. The world is not to blame, it's my grabbing for it that makes the problems, all the problems. And I remember reading that, it was like, whoa, you know, how profound that is. And I, I was watching him and he was he was just shining because what he had come on in, don't don't be shy, just grab a seat. Man, there's plenty down in front. If you come late, you gotta sit in front. How embarrassing, man. I got all these empty seats here. Grab grab a seat. Yeah. Okay. So he, um, what a profound insight that all he had to do was just let it go. The world doesn't stop. Why don't you, let me suggest you sit right behind. There you go. Otherwise you're in front of the monks. See, we do have rules here. Man, it's just not easy, is it? Okay, that's your spot. Turn to page 50 in your text, right there in front of you. All right, welcome. So the world doesn't have to be silenced, all you have to do is stop grabbing it, and then it's quiet. Uh, Chin Wei Shu, would you help him? He's, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in the songbook there. Okay, good. If you stop grabbing it, the world simply moves right through, and there's no blame, there's no fault in the world. It's painless, it's empty, if you stop grabbing. So, <clears throat> here's that's the ultimate answer. And our bhikshuni asking Master Hua whether anybody's going to get enlightened because the world's too noisy. I mean, she was, of course, testing the teacher and also testing Dr. Konza. And the answer was profound. We were in a Chan session at the time. And there's no place in the world that's quiet until we stop stopping the sound until we stop grabbing the sounds. Once we do that, you can be anywhere and you shushin anju. You bring your mind back and dwell in peace. You live peacefully. You settle in. Anju, you settle in peacefully. All right? And then you're free. Then anywhere you are is the center of the universe and it's quiet because you're not stopping. 
Marty's awareness was, that the thing that, that got me as I read it was how he said everything moves through. Those, where did the, the sounds that bother us, the bird, right? Chirp, chirp, as you're sitting there trying to meditate and the bird is, where does that sound start and where does it stop? Like, that sound is just moving through. And it can go through this ear, make the chemical changes in my brain that says bird call, move on through, and I don't have to love it, hate it, grab it, hear it again, get angry at it, or try to block it out. I don't have to tense up, I'm not hearing the bird, I'm not hearing the bird. How ridiculous. All that work when it's just ripples on the continuum, ripples on the water. So that was... That was Marty's reaction. And I remember the, the feeling of liberation that he brought back with him. How, you know, suddenly I don't have to judge the world around me. I don't have to like it or dislike it. I don't have to react at all. It's not that you don't hear it. The sounds are all there completely. They're, but you just don't have to stop them, taste them, reject them, love them, hear them again, etc., etc. So... He focuses his mind, settles his body in a quiet and tranquil place. Then comes the key sentence. And this is kind of a repeat of the one we just had. This is one of the the sentences that kind of come out of the sutra and establish itself, establishes itself as a a, uh, soundbite. That's that's not the right word. A watchword, a a motto. Here's a motto. Here's a, a chengyu, right? This is a... A bon mot. What is it? Let me show you in Chinese. We're looking on the first line of page 52 at the top. Got it? Ru shuo xiu xing nai de fu fa. Fei dan kou yan er ke qing jing. Literally, as spoken or as taught, cultivate. Literally, adjust your steps, adjust your travel. Only then get Buddha Dharma. Not merely mouth speaking can one master it. Can one make it pure? Okay? Like the teaching, going and changing your behavior, only then do you get the Buddha Dharma. Not merely mouth speaking can one purify it. So it's like, wow, e okay, so what do we say in English? We say you have to practice what you preach. Only then is it real. You have to walk your talk. That's the contemporary version. You have to actually do it. And then you can get mastered. What a simple what a simple message, but that's the story. That's that's what the Bodhisattva is realizing here. He got what he wanted. He threw his body down from the mountaintop into a pit of fire and got the sentence of Dharma he was looking for. And now he's saying, yeah, I got to actually go do it. And then I can get mastery. But check again. What's his motive? His motive is to help people he cares about get past their pain, get past their suffering. That's the motive. And that's a powerful motive. That's the heart. And it's another testimony to how much this sutra is based on people's heart. 
not on theory, philosophy, you know, um, abstraction. This is a living document rooted in people's actual experience. And <clears throat> it's a medicine text. It's a healing text. Okay. Now, anybody got a comment or a question? I, I mentioned Ajahn Guna today that I, I really want to make our Saturday night lectures more interactive. And the only way to do that is for me to be quiet periodically. If I just keep talking, nobody's going to talk over me. But I, I do want to open it up. And um, in, in theater, they call this the proscenium arch. Most theaters will have a, a stage. We've got an arch. Here's our proscenium arch right here. And I want to penetrate that boundary and bring people, make it a conversation instead of a lecture. So the only way to do that is for me to be quiet and encourage you all to ask questions. All right, anybody? Yeah, too much. Seventy. It was actually seventy-two. I think. Seventy-two. So now, two thousand and twelve. I've heard a noise, at least a mental noise, even is a lot greater in this younger generation. And so, um, I think that that is maybe even stronger. Is can we? How how do we cultivate with our minds so, and our and our bodies and, and physically outside so exposed to noise and stuff that's just going on? Right. So. Okay, thank you. Chinwaisher's question was um, that comment about noise and, and at the time it was enlightenment, but it could have just been cultivation. That was in the 70s. And now we're in the 2012. And if anything, the noise is greater. So what do we do now? How do we get our minds free of, of that amount of noise in order to cultivate <clears throat> well, of course, that's the million-dollar question. And this time, when I was in Singapore, um, I invited, I, I gave a series of lectures in Singapore and invited people to, to write questions on little squares of paper that the, the, uh, the volunteers prepared. And one-fifth, so one out of five questions of the hundred so that I got were one question. Every time I meditate, my mind is full of noise. What's wrong? How do I deal with all the thoughts in my mind? That was the question. How do I deal with the noise? The static on the radio. So, that's a question I really like because what it indicates, people are trying. People are actually trying to quiet their minds. They're trying to meditate. And what do we get? We get the same response, which is... Instead of, today's news brought to you by, we don't get the newscaster's voice, we get the static on the radio. We haven't found a station, right? No, not right, not true. We found a station. What we've learned is it's not easy to quiet your mind. 
What a huge discovery. How much static is on our radio. How hard it is to really tune in to the station. It's really hard. And the sutra is here to remind us, number one, to try. Number two, to say, you've got the right frequency. You found the right dial. It's 88.5. It's not, you know, you're not off the station. This is KQED, listener-supported radio in Northern California. Um, The mind is there. You can find the frequency, but you have to somehow clean up the static so you can hear what's on your mind. Okay. If only it were that easy. Chinway's question had to do with, you know, we're deeper into a world full of misery and suffering. Now, my question, counter question would be, is it the case that the world is more messed up than before? And in some cases, yeah, you could say the environment is an example. Climate change is one. Or is it that we're more connected than before and now we know what kind of suffering is going on? Is it that there's quantitatively more suffering and more noise or is it that we're just more aware of it because of you know, global communications, because of internet communications? Now, some people would say, yeah, but uh, we, we talked today to a Benedictine monk who lives in Lyle, Illinois. L-I-S-L-E, is that pronounced Lyle? Any, any Illinois folks here? He lives at uh, St. Procopius Abbey, a Benedictine monastery outside of Chicago. He doesn't do Facebook. And I was so pleased to find that there are monks who don't do Facebook. Isn't that good? That's great. It's, it's the rare person anymore who is not among the 8 billion Facebook users. Um, so there, there are people who do not do the Internet. So the question would be, are they suffering more or less if they don't use technology? Well, um, that's a question. We are more wired and more aware than ever before. Perfect example. I can hand you a piece of plastic this big and this thin that contains that and that. Furthermore, you can go click, click, click and find any instance of Shakyamuni Buddha on that piece of plastic, which is impossible. So one of the advantages of Internet technology is certainly speed and convenience. One of the disadvantages is now we know how much suffering there is everywhere. But how much suffering was there during the Hundred Years' War, which was in Europe? A century of warfare, unending, a lot of suffering. How much suffering was there during World War II when these men, mostly men, when the whistle blew, they climbed up over the top of these trenches and advanced into machine gun bullets through barbed wire and all died. You know, you go, yeah. Well, we didn't have internet technology then. I just was on an airplane and watched Man of War, no, no, uh, War Horse, the movie War Horse. Anybody see War Horse? It's a Steven Spielberg film that brings World War I vividly to mind. And it was insane. You know, it's, it, it's insanity, what we do, what people do regularly. So was there more or less suffering there? Probably, I think, the same. But now we're aware of it. Now we know. You can click on a link and see pictures from the rape of Nanjing that were hard to find. You can see pictures of the Tiananmen massacre 
um, <clears throat> that are that you can't see in China, for example, etc. So, not suggesting you do that, but I'm saying there's we have access, we can witness suffering that wasn't available before. So, that would be a testimony that yes, there is now access to more noise in the mind. Here's one of the other ideas that is really disturbing, which is, if we're talking about how the bodhisattva can settle his or her body into a quiet and tranquil place and decide to put the Buddha Dharma into practice because he believes that talking won't do it, he wants to actually experience it, what if that bodhisattva from age five had been put on psychopharmacopia, psychiatric pharmacopia? What does that mean? What if his parents fed him Ritalin when he was five, or one of the incredible number of mood-altering drugs that parents are being told by doctors to give to kids to make them normal or pass their disorder, right? Obsessive-compulsive disorder or attention deficit, deficiency disorder, ADD, etc., etc. I've been reading, we've been talking around the monastery about this new trend in America, which is to pump kids full of drugs because the doctors say they should. How do the doctors learn about that? Because big pharmacopoeia, big, big pill makers, are giving them drugs to give to the kids, telling the psychiatrist to come up with names for illnesses that didn't exist before, so they'll buy the drugs. And there's a, there's a whole new... I'm, I hope I'm not disturbing you. If I'm creating more anger in your minds or more upset, more affliction... I haven't done my job. But big pharmacopoeia, big pill makers in this country are now turning to children as the next market because they will buy those drugs and schools insist that the children take the drugs and will force the kids to take them. And the drugs do not get tested beforehand. And the big questions are, now, okay, I think, we have some questions here. So one of the questions that people are raising is, if kids start out on chemical intervention at a certain age, is there any guarantee that they will ever stop? At a certain point, you say, okay, you're fine now. We don't need to give you the drugs. And what happens when you're five years old and you've been taking drugs for five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, and then you try to get rid of them and then go meditate? What does that do to the noise on your radio? Can you actually find your mind after that? Big question. Now, there's, I want to say that in some cases, intervention is a good thing. And there may be a case when kids benefit from speed, which is what Ritalin is. If kids are hyperactive, in the past... There was a way to cope, or the kid left school, or he, he or she was allowed to continue their education. Now we intervene, change the kid's internal chemistry, 
Sometimes that's a good thing. There's evidence that there is benefit. But when it becomes artificially induced by the companies for profit, you go, wait. You know, so I'm not saying chemical mood-altering drugs are bad. I'm saying the abuse of them is bad. And if you get a, give a kid pills when they don't need it, we don't know the consequences. My guess is one of the consequences will be it'll be harder to calm your mind once you decide to get rid of those drugs. It'll be harder. We don't know yet. We don't know. Um, so that's another an added layer of trouble. So I saw uh, Ajahn Gunnar reaching for the mic. Did, did you have a comment? Oh, yeah, okay. Did anybody else have a comment or a question? This is a big, big deal for meditation teachers and people who study the mind. Because what if you want to, you know, um, decide at some point you're going to meditate and you want to clearly hear what's in there. And you discover that there's a layer of, of mm, what, fog that you can't sit through you can't see through because your chemistry has been changed we don't know yet we don't know so i'm more, i'm as concerned about chin Shir's question is there is it harder now maybe maybe i know for sure kids who grew up with mtv let's not talk about giving kids drugs let's talk about television because that's pervasive whether or not people force the schools force the kids to eat prescription drugs that to, to calm some totally bogus disorder that the drug companies created to sell profit to kids who shouldn't be taking drugs. Never mind. But the average television in the average American home is on for seven and a half hours a day. Less so since the internet, because now we switch to our computer monitors and our handhelds and our iPads. Some of you may be looking at your iPad right now. Certainly everybody at home online who's listening to this lecture has got their computer on, right? Ooh, that pinches, doesn't it? Right? Anybody who's listening online has got their computer on. Are you surfing while you're listening to my voice? <laughs> we got Fosher and this speaker, and over here we're catching up on, you know, we're watching a rerun of the Preakness today where our horse... What's the name of the horse who won the Preakness? Uh, I'll have another. What's it called? He won. Anybody, we, we're not horse racing fans here anymore. When I was growing up, you at, we did not fail to watch the Kentucky Derby. It was a family event. It was a great thing. Well, the same horse that won the Derby two weeks ago won the Preakness today. He's called, I think his name is I'll Have Another, something like that. And he's got one more chance coming up at the Belmont. And if he does, he will be the first Triple Crown winner in 34 years. Big deal. You know, I'm not. You're not. You're not Irish, right? If you're Irish, you know about horse racing. So. Anyway, never mind. We won't go there tonight. But so if you are surfing online, listening to the sutra, who's, you know, that's what we do. We are the generation of, we're the online generation. The generation after mine was the MTV generation. And Doug Powers, our, our co-director here, 
will tell you in his 30 years of teaching at Berkeley High School that young people's attention span has permanently changed. The influence of TV. And what happens on TV is the pictures jump faster than they did when I was watching TV. When I first watched TV, and some of you who are my age, it was one camera. And the camera slowly focused on the speaker's face. And if it was, you know, you're watching Hopalong Cassidy, Hopalong Cassidy, they had the horse galloping. And the camera stayed with him. The Lone Ranger with his pal Tonto. And the camera stayed with him. You know, and that was that. The camera didn't jump, 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 jump. And then I find myself unable to watch like most music videos, which were born from MTV. The camera moves too fast. I, I find, I want to go, hey, stop, 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 stop. Too much input. And somebody who only knew that, that's TV, right? That's not called too much, that's TV. Well, I saw TV when the camera was like, and then it would pan, you know, and maybe switch to another view, maybe, slowly. But it wasn't cut, 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 cut. So anyway, that changes our attention span. What does that do to our ability to meditate? There's a drug, right? And after you've absorbed X thousands of hours of that, it actually, your synapses start to follow what you, we become what we behold, right? So you, and it's really hard to sit still. So, big issues. So I'm much more concerned about that drug because it's absolutely universal. Question? Is it reversible? Is it reversible? I think absolutely. Yeah, I think it's got to be. Why? It's a living organic system. And all you have to do is just stop that blink, 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 and you'll find your, whatever your natural, you know, pattern, your, your natural habits are. Proof of that is, I just came back from living in the Australian bush. And in the, the, the loudest noise... There is the horse who lived next door. The horse would go, I can't do a horse, but do you do a horse? No, I don't do a horse. He doesn't do a horse either. So I can't do a horse, but the horse would neigh, and it's loud. Horses are loud. They got a big boom, big voice. And it would startle me. You know, oh, I, I took a, I contributed to the noise pollution in the Australian bush because I had a tin whistle, an Irish penny whistle, and I would play my penny whistle, and the nuns, quarter of a mile away would go, you know, would you please do that when we're not meditating? You know, <laughs> it's like, that's too loud. And it was echoing through the bush, you know, and I was just going. <whistles> and they were. <laughs> so that's quiet. That was really quiet. And I found the first week I was there, it was hard to meditate because I just come from Berkeley. And the second week was a little easier. By the third week, I was sitting still. So it is. It's immediately reversible. And man, oh man, I didn't have a TV, and the internet was too slow to, to stream anything. And it got quiet. It got really quiet. So I, it's com- completely reversible. And if, you, if we can really get offline and take a data Sabbath, give a day every week where you just don't turn anything on, as they say on the, 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 the 
flight attendants these days are saying, anything with an on-off switch, turn it to off. That's really clear. That includes your phone, your iPad, even your noise-canceling headphones. Some people tell you to shut that off, which I think is silly. But so anything with an on-off switch, turn it off until we reach 30,000 feet, cruising altitude. Then you can turn it back on. So if we do that, if we turn everything off, it's amazing how quickly you realize, geez, I am surrounded by swirling electrons. I do that to myself. What's it like to actually cool my six senses? What's that like? It's profoundly disorienting while you reconnect. But try it. Give yourself a day when you go offline. It's funny. You kind of get, you know, your hand moves for the mouse even when there's no mouse there. You know? <laughs> the ghost mouse. You know? <laughs> Very funny. Okay, any more questions? If not, we're going to go to 53 and 52, 52, 53. We're going to go through this the next, <clears throat> the next four paragraphs. I'll read it in Chinese first, and then we're going to read the English together. So... <clears throat> 佛子是菩萨住此法广地时诸圣所说能舍有念受乐住地三禅断乐先除苦喜忧灭不苦不乐舍念清净住地四禅。Okay, let's look over to page 53. Would you all read with me? Let's let's read together. Here we go. Disciples of the Buddha. When that bodhisattva dwells upon this ground of emitting light, he dwells in the first dhyana, having become free from desires and from evil and unwholesome dharmas, possessing reflection and possessing consideration in the joy of separation from production. He dwells in the second dhyana, having extinguished reflection and consideration with inner purity and singleness of mind, devoid of reflection and consideration in the joy of production of samadhi. He dwells in the third dhyana, having separated from joy, dwelling in renunciation, while still possessing thought and proper knowledge, so that his experience of personal bliss is as described by all sages, the bliss of renunciation while still possessing thought. He dwells in the fourth dhyana, having severed bliss by first expelling suffering and then extinguishing joy and sorrow, feeling neither suffering nor bliss in the purity of renunciation of thought. Okay. Now, that's a particularly opaque passage. A lot of that language, it's hard to, to, to uh, grasp even if you work on it. 
it's not, we haven't polished that yet. What you're reading there is our 1982 to 86 version of translation. We got to do this one again. This is on our radar screen to improve. It doesn't make a lot of sense as it stands. One reason is it's hard. This is a hard passage because what's it talking about? It's talking about the four dhyanas. This is the four Chan states, the four meditative states. Um, <clears throat> the word dhyana is the word that gave birth to the word Chan in Chinese. The word Chan in Chinese is the word that gave birth to Zen in Japanese and Son in, in Korean. This is Chan. Uh, who are we? We are Chan Buddhists, right? We're, people say, oh, you're Chinese Zen. No, the Japanese are Japanese Chan. Zen, we had it first. Of course, somebody, some purist could say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you're not. You're Chinese Dhyana. Right? The Indians had it first. It's Dhyana first. Okay. And somebody else could say, well, the, in, it doesn't, the Indians can't own it. It's the mind. It's universal. So the Indians were the first ones to systematize it, the Buddha. The Chinese took Dhyana, that word, and called it Chano, because you can't say Dhya in Mandarin. There is no Dhya sound in Mandarin. So the best they could do was Chan. The Japanese don't say Chan. They say Zen. Zen no shimasu. So that's Zazen came from that. And then the Koreans call it so on. So this is talking about states of meditation. Now, in this paragraph is an actual description of what happens in your mind. This is, you could say, biological language. It's psychological language. This is the, the process of turning consciousness to meditative wisdom. This is the fifth of the paramitas. This is the dhyana paramita, the perfection of meditation. And this, this passage is really packed full of stuff that you all could benefit from if we could understand what it's saying. It's hard to understand what it's saying. Why? This is a profound state. This is real meditative states. And if you, if you haven't been there, you don't get it. That's, you, and you can't fake this. Because this is talking about a state that almost anybody can attain to. But you have to actually do the work of settling your body, focus your mind, settle in a quiet, tranquil place, and then put the teachings into practice the way they're taught. When you do that, you can enter the dhyanas. Now, in the Pali tradition, they talk about jhanas. It's, jhana is the Pali name for dhyana in Sanskrit. And there's, there are four of them, four states, and they go one, two, three, four. They're successive. And the thing about these is when you enter them, you change. You're, you go through changes. What are the changes? Disciples of the Buddha, when the Bodhisattva dwells upon this ground of emitting light, that's the third ground, the third stage, that's where we are, he, she, dwells in the first dhyana. Well, dwell is a funny word. 
live in the first dhyana, uh, settle into the first dhyana. I kind of like the settling because there's a sense of, you know, kind of, boom, you're there. You land in the first dhyana. All those words would be okay for zhu in Chinese. Dwell, I dwell on 2304 McKinley. Well, Shakespeare talked about it. You don't dwell. I dwell in the city of Berkeley. Yeah, you live there, is what we say. Yeah, I live there. Uh, I stay there. Yeah, I stay there. I stay in Berkeley. That's closer to English, contemporary English. So the Bodhisattva doesn't dwell upon the first dhyana. The Bodhisattva kind of lives there, stays there, settles in. Um, more archaic would be abide. The Bodhisattva abides in the first dhyana. Well, you don't abide. You know, Beowulf abides somewhere. Shakespeare abides. What do we do? We stay there. We move in. The Bodhisattva moves into the first dhyana. That's closer to what's actually happening. Dwells in the first dhyana, moves into the first dhyana, having become free from desire and from evil and unwholesome dharmas. What funny language that is. Are you free from desire? Are you free from evil? Are you free from wholesome, unwholesome desire? Yeah. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Well, let's look into it. All of those things, if you get desire from the Buddhist point of view, is a hindrance. It's a block. It's an obstacle. It keeps you from what you want. So it's desire is not so good. Evil, wow. Of course, we don't want to be evil. And unwholesome dharmas means bad habits. What's an unwholesome dharma? Killing is an unwholesome dharma. We want to be free of killing. We don't want to kill. Stealing is an unwholesome dharma. Yeah. Sexual misconduct, adultery, dishonesty, intoxication. Those are all unwholesome dharmas. The bodhisattva is free of those. Evil, you could say those are all evils too. And desire is the thing that pulls you out of your stillness and you're, you're settling in, you're moving in. The bodhisattva is free of those. If you said it in positive language, you could say what? The bodhisattva is content, the bodhisattva is good, and the bodhisattva is... Um, what are, you know, free of unwholesome garments. The Bodhisattva does good things. It's a good heart and does good things and is, is peaceful and settled, content. So that's more approachable, right? The Bodhisattva's got a contented heart. The Bodhisattva's got a kind heart. The Bodhisattva does good stuff, benefits people. There, that's language I can, okay. So that's what it's saying. Here's, that's the state of mind of the bodhisattva who's meditating. Now, what else? Possessing reflection and possessing consideration. That's such strange language. I possess consideration. We don't talk like that. That makes no sense, right? What does it mean? The bodhisattva is, first of all, kind-hearted and, and good, but it means Awareness is alive in this bodhisattva. Yoguan, the bodhisattva is paying attention. That's Yoguan, literally has contemplation. The bodhisattva is awake and paying attention. That's what we say. Right? That's ordinary. Now, is that really what the sutra is saying? 
I don't think it's that quite that simple, but the language is such. You're awake. You're paying attention. What is guan? Um, we have done some research into this. Uh, our translation group, YC and others, have extensively looked into this. And I think in Pali, it's, there's, these are technical terms, vitarka and, and what is it? Chitti and vitarka. There's the technical terms that in the Abhidharma tradition, in the, in the Pali tradition, in the Theravada tradition, they, have, they go into it very specifically, talking about what jie and guan are. And <clears throat> so I don't want to simplify it beyond the, the actual states, but if we, to make the language approachable, what I want to say is the Bodhisattva is awake and paying attention to what? To his mind, to her mind. Li sheng shi le. And what does it say? In the joy of separation from production. That makes no sense whatsoever. Separation from production. I don't want to even imagine what that is. What does it mean? The Bodhisattva li sheng shi le has a joy, is happy because sheng doesn't happen anymore. What is sheng? Keyword. This, it literally means birth. Production is a Latin word, Latinate. That's, it's, we have a perfectly good Anglo-Saxon word that will do better. The Bodhisattva doesn't go through that state of constant rebirth. Not Birth and death isn't over, but the sheng that ordinary living beings experience of desire arising, of existence arising, is over for this bodhisattva. He, she is very quiet. That's what it means. When you sit still, you're really quiet. Your mind is calm, your senses are calm. Why? You don't have desire anymore. You're not scanning, looking for the good stuff anymore. Who's cute? Who's wearing what? Ah, look at those shoes. I don't have a pair like that. Are those Jimmy Choo's? You're not doing that. You're not noticing shoes, right? Guys are not noticing cars. Oh, man, Maserati. No, we're not doing that. We're not scanning for cars. You're not noticing, you know, watches or whatever. What do you notice? Um, you're not hoping to score. Things are quiet for you. You're really quiet. The Bodhisattva can, can be in that stillness of not running out the slightest bit from eyes, from ears, from nose, from tongue, from body, from mind. The mind is still and quiet, contented, not unhappy with the situation around, not trying to improve it all the time, not trying to react to the situation. Right? Still and calm and quiet and peaceful. Li sheng. And when you're free from that, constantly grasping, running out, there is joy in that. There is happiness. So... The first dhyana is called li sheng shi le di, the stage of happiness that results from ending that constant cycle of 
running out your senses looking for stuff. It's a state of real happiness. And so the four dhyanas, according to Master Shenhua, who spent a lot of time telling us about these, urging us to meditate more deeply, to calm our senses so that we could experience this, because he said, this state is truly happy, way beyond anything that the world can bring us in terms of happiness. Why? Because your senses are used differently. Where does happiness come from? Certainly from our senses. That was the best dinner I've had in weeks. That restaurant really knows how to do pho. That's a great pho restaurant. Tastes just like home. Which reminds me of what it was like back in Saigon. Wow, that's good home cooking. That's real good pho. Or... You say, you know, I had the best birthday party I've ever had. It was so great to have the whole family back. And we were happy for about an hour until Uncle John started to talk about that piece of land that we never should have sold. And he, you know, started scolding. And we were, and boom, you know. And the happiness went away. But the happiness that I knew came through my senses. Okay. And the world can bring us real happiness, real pleasure. You know, sense pleasure. According to the people who enter the dhyanas, they say, when you enter that dhyana state, the, the best pleasures the world can bring us, our bodies, for example, are pale by comparison. Not that that's not happiness, but the, the happiness of dhyana is way beyond that. Li sheng shi le. It's happiness that comes from beyond what the six senses give us when... We're constantly pursuing stuff. It's like, what's it like? It must be like, um, have you ever, when was the last time you attended a, a symphony, an orchestra, for an opera or for a concert or something, and the they're all tuning up, right? That moment where they're, all the instruments are tuning once and the conductor comes out and he goes and they go it's like that I think I'm giving an example the six senses instead of each pursuing its own separate world looking, listening, tasting, touching, sensing, thinking your senses go And there's a change. The six senses find that A440 when the conductor goes tap, tap, tap. And they go, hmm, and they change. The sign for that is what happened? Your heart stops beating. But I thought that was dead. Aren't we dead when our hearts... Master Shen Ma says, no. no. When you can enter that first dhyana, your heartbeat changes. When you enter the second dhyana, your breath stops. And you breathe in a different way. And you're not dead than either one. What has happened? When you enter the third dhyana, we're not there yet, that's the third paragraph, your coarse thoughts stop running around. 
and your mind joins. The mind is the last one. First is the body, right? The heartbeat, lungs, coarse thoughts. When you enter the fourth dhyana, your mind is free of thoughts. And you truly put your body into a different octave. Here, I got a perfect example. Okay, listen. Here's this is our senses used normally. When you enter the dhyanas, it goes like this. When you enter the fourth dhyana, it's same note. Same note, but a different octave. You take it up. You go from two. That's all an E, but it's up there. Same note, right? And anybody can get here, but if you don't make that note, you don't hear that sound. All you hear is which is where we are but if you can cultivate in the dhyanas you get to different octave different level of sound it's the same note but used differently same instrument you enter the dhyanas in your body but it's a different level of function So, Master Wah would say, anybody who cultivates can enter the dhyanas. And then he would say, and it's really worth it. Oh, you should, he would say. You should do it. Because it's really joyful and happy. So the first one is called Li Sheng Shi Le Di, the stage of joy, of happiness, the stage of happiness that arises when that Sheng stops, that Constant seeking for connection with the senses. Okay, next. The Bodhisattva dwells in the second dhyana. It's now the second one. Bodhisattva stays there, moves into the second dhyana, having extinguished reflection and consideration. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds horrible. How do you extinguish reflection? What happens is it's mia chueguan so, that that awake and paying attention stops. You're no longer directing your awareness and your attention because there's the, the me that's paying attention is now gone. So you've changed the, the, the awareness one, the one who is aware changes. Nei jing yi xin internally pure one mind so you focus and purify your your awareness has become very single minded concentration you're really concentrating because you went from bong to you're really concentrated now you, there is no Awareness and there's no paying attention, awareness and attention. You're not contemplating, you're not noticing, because that 
function has now merged with the substance of the mind. Ding, sheng, shi, le. Samadhi comes forth happiness. The second dhyana, zhu, di, archan, the second chan state is a state of happiness where samadhi arises. So here's where samadhi comes. This is another Sanskrit word along with our dhyana word. Right? Samadhi, ding, concentration. This is the next level of, of chan, of dhyana. And Master Hua would say, this is even happier. It's happier yet. It's a stage of, of happiness that is, he would say, indescribable. Way, way beyond anything that the world can give us in terms of happiness. And then he would say, and it's really worth it, and you should try. Go there, he would say. Anybody can. And we'd all get fired up and go, okay, I'll just sit here. And then it would come lunchtime. (laughs) Our noses would go out to the kitchen. Oh, I'm out of samadhi. I'm back. Because one sense would go out to connect. And the sheng is all back. Number three, he dwells in the third dhyana. She moves into the third dhyana, having separated from joy. That sounds terrible. You separate from joy. It's not good English. Dwelling in renunciation while still possessing thought and proper knowledge so that her experience of personal bliss is as described by all sages, the bliss of renunciation while still possessing thought. Okay, let's look at the Chinese. Li Shi Zhu She Happiness is over now. Why? The thing, the person that's experiencing happiness is now gone. You're not even distinguishing based on me anymore. First, in the first dhyana, there was still something that could feel and could could pay attention. The second dhyana, that self is gone. Now in the third dhyana, that self was gone, but the happiness experiencer was still there. In the third dhyana, the happiness experiencer has now been refined back to where you're not even... There's not even enough self there to like feel happiness. Yo nian zhengzhi, but there is still a level of knowledge. You haven't wiped out your mind yet. So your knowledge of right and wrong is still there. Yo nian zhengzhi, shen shou le. Your body is still aware of bliss. There's still part of your cognitive function is still there to experience le, not happiness, but joy and bliss. Zhu sheng suo shuo, something that sages talk about. So when you look in the text, or if you look at the patriarchs, they will tell you that this stage is really blissful. Neng she, they are able to let go. Yo nian shou le, um, the thoughts experience the bliss. This is in the third dhyana. So there's a level of thinking there, but it's much refined. Okay? And then the fourth dhyana, Duan Le Xian Chu, he dwells in the fourth dhyana having severed bliss. Sounds terrible. By first expelling suffering and then extinguishing joy and sorrow, feeling neither suffering nor bliss in the purity of renunciation of thought. The fourth level of dhyana goes beyond all bliss and non-bliss. 
Suffering's gone, bliss is gone, thinking is gone. What you've done is progressively refined the whole cognitive apparatus. Anybody who's interested in the biology of the mind and body gets interested in this because this is a profound psychological transformation. You've actually changed your whole wiring inside. Okay? But it's, it's done through what? Through dharma. Through practicing meditation. And you could say it's really scary because you're different when this is over. But it's the Buddha's method and it's what the Buddha himself did. The story goes that the, when the, that night um, when the Buddha woke up, the night when the Buddha became the Buddha, this is what he was doing. He was going through the dhyanas. And progressively, and then they say he saw, he saw a bright star and light into the way. Some people say that was the third dhyana where that happened. And then he went on to the fourth dhyana later. That's whether, you know, whether that's where it happened or... But clearly, the Buddha under the Bodhi tree was progressively refining his consciousness using the dhyanas when he woke up. They say that in the gods in the Brahma heavens, there's this level of heavens called the Brahma heavens, there's the form realm, they're in these states all the time. And, which says, if you, right now, in 2012, can enter these states of the, the dhyanas, you can be in the, in the states of the gods. You can know what it's like to be a god through entering the dhyanas. So, gods come become gods through being people who meditated. It's not that they're born gods and that they're gods for... No, it's because of the interaction of your body and the states of the dhyanas that you get to the heaven states. Okay, how interesting. As I say, big stuff. This is really packed full of, of stuff. And anybody who um, applies themselves in meditation has the potential to experience the dhyanas. Now, I did a really quick sloppy run-through of these four stages. They deserve much more precise, clear descriptions of what is jue, what is guan, what is that awareness, what is that contemplation. And if we had the Pali uh, words and the Sanskrit words, we could give you the step-by-step. But um, I'm not going to do that because it would, it would take a, many nights to do it, the job it deserves. So I'm announcing that I'm skipping the tops of the waves. I'm just bump, bump, bump across the top. And encouraging anybody who wants to know more to look into it. Um, Master Srinwa's talks on Dharma have a lot of talk about Chan and Dhyana. <clears throat> Understand the context. The Bodhisattva said, I will give anything to hear a sentence of Dharma that will help me master the Bodhisattva practices. Well, what he heard was meditation instruction. What his, the sentence that he heard was exhortation to go sit longer. But notice that the sitting is, this, is not the first step. The first step is to transform desire, stop doing evil, and don't, don't do nasty stuff. How does it go? He, you get free from desire, 
You stop doing evil, you stop doing unwholesome things. So you become a good person, in, in short. Be a good person. Don't hurt people. Don't hurt yourself. Don't allow depression into your mind. Right? And then when you meditate, wow, it gets really quiet. It's really quiet. Sure is not easy to do. Because why we get upset if coffee isn't sweet enough. Or if it's too sweet. We get upset if the food isn't spicy enough. We reach for the hot sauce. Because why? We have things we like and we have things we don't like. And that will bump you right out of the dhyanas. Why? Because your tongue is looking for a flavor you recognize. I Let me tell you how that works. Um, while bowing on the pilgrimage to City of 10,000 Buddhas, I was trying like crazy to do anything that would help me get enlightened. I want to be enlightened. So at some point, I said, okay, the problem is why desires? Because the food is too good. I want to eat unseasoned food. No oil, no salt for me from now on. And, of course, all the, the donors and the cooks who were trying to cook were going, okay, we'll give you no oil, no salt. How do you do that? So they did. They gave me unseasoned food. And the first three weeks of eating that food, my tongue went nuts. Going around, put the food in my mouth, and my tongue, I could feel my tongue goes, where's the sugar? Where's the salt? Where's the oil? Where's the flavor? And it was just simple steamed vegetables and rice. And my tongue wouldn't accept it. It was looking for flavor. And it was like, never mind that my mouth is full of food and I'm chewing. My tongue wanted flavors it recognized. I was so attached to salt and sugar and oil and flavor, spices, it was, my tongue went crazy. And I was watching this happen. It was like my tongue was doing it in my body. I was so used to flavor. And that was my meal, you know, and there was no flavor in the food. And I was going, never mind that it was full of broccoli flavor and full of brown rice flavor and full of bread, you know. My tongue wanted what it recognized as food. After three weeks, it calmed down and I could suddenly taste this incredible world of flavor that exists beyond seasoning. Right? What, a, what an awareness that how much we're addicted to having it taste the way mom cooked it. You know, which we first recognized as food. And food is love and love is security and love, you know. We have all these connections to flavor. And it was so humbling to realize how much a slave I was to my tongue. Wow. But by letting it go, I got used to it. And then after, after years of that, Master Hua said, that's enough, eat normal. You don't know how much trouble you're giving the cooks. Don't be so selfish. Why do you have to be special? He said, you're just trying to be special. You want to be number one. Your motive is not pure. Oh, okay. Then I went back to eating normal, which is to say no onions, no garlic, no meat, no fish, no alcohol, no tobacco, no MSG. No. That's normal for monks. Okay. So eating normal, and I had to suddenly go back into flavor, and I went through the reverse process, which is like, wow, this tastes so strong. You know? And it was salt. So, uh, anyway, now I'm eating normal, quote. And 
It'd be good if I eat less chocolate. That would be good. You get kind of addicted to chocolate. Anyway, so that's um, the key to the dhyanas is to calm the six senses. And man, it's not a head trip. It's real when your senses get addicted. As David Rounds, bless his heart, decided to leave home at Gold Mountain and was able to leave home for three days. In the morning of the fourth day, he wasn't, he wasn't there. And when he crawled back in after a month, Sherpa said, Ah, oh, Gojo, we thought you were going to leave home. Yeah, Sherpa, it's really embarrassing. I couldn't put down coffee, toast, and the New York Times at breakfast. He said, <laughs> Yeah, he's really honest. <laughs> Phil was laughing. Coffee, toast, and New York Times. That's the way you start the morning. And David, you know, recognized it. So, okay. Sherville made a classic line. He said, this, that's our Gojo. We all know he's a novelist. David is a writer. He said, yeah, just like other things, David's leaving home was somewhat fictional. He said. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, so that's the four dhyanas. Please come back and take a look. And, and it, it deserves more than this. We're going to clean that up. Our English translation is still very raw. But that's a profound state. And it's not easy to, to, to get it clean until you actually experience it. So we're, we're still working on it. Let us transfer the merit. And you'll find that dedication of merit on the back of your uh, songbook or flip over the request the Dharma request sheet it's on there too and this is interactive you make a wish with your mind send out your merit to wherever you'd like to send it with whatever wish you'd like to attach to that
Because our hearts are